I'm a musician. You don't know that, uh, that about me. And whenever I see a good musician, I mean like a, a really good musician, there's a bit of conflict within me. Um, maybe some of you have heard of uh, Bela Fleck. Uh, turn this on. Here we can go. Get a picture. There we go. He's a jazz banjo player. Yes, that is a thing. Or at least he's created that to be a thing. Um, I've been able to see him play a few times, and especially with his band, the, the Flectones, they're just mind-blowingly good. They're just like at the top of their game at everything they do. And it's seeing a band like this, and afterwards I get inspired, but I also get a little bit depressed. Inspired because music is amazing. It's amazing that humans can make something so crazy and beautiful and, and incredible and, and do that together. Um, but it's also depressing because they are miles ahead of where I will ever be as a musician myself. Inspiring and depressing. I love it, and I also know I will never attain it. I know maybe some of you feel the same way. Say, like, you're an author, and you read an author, you just you don't want to read it because it makes you angry because you know she, she's writing better than you will ever write, but then also it's really, really good, so you want to read it anyway. Or if you're into sport, if you see someone you know, on TV and they're doing something amazing, you're like, oh, why do I even bother? These people are amazing. You know, I think the Sermon on the Mount is similar in this regard. King Jesus is telling his disciples what it looks like to be in his kingdom. And, and it's an inspiring kind of message, but it's also really depressing. Because we realize we don't match up. It's a beautiful picture, but we don't quite match up. Now, Jesus often talks in this kind of way that it, 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 and creates this kind of conflict within people that he interacts with. And what he really wants to do is to comfort those who feel afflicted and to afflict those who feel like, comfortable. No wonder we feel inspired and depressed. And we'll stay in that conflicted state if we view this manifesto merely as just a way to live. If that's the only way we view it, we will always kind of have that dual thing going in us. We'll give up, even though we'll be inspired, because we're going to be depressed that we can't match it. Or we'll shrink down the big, massive, radical vision that Jesus has into something that's more attainable and less like what Jesus is talking about. And so the Sermon on the Mount is more than just a way to live, because this is the king. Even later on, the people who are hearing him teach are amazed, because they've never heard someone talk like this before. Never heard someone teach like this before. And not only is this the king, but as he's talking about the kingdom, he is literally bringing his kingdom to earth. It's a new world he is establishing. So it points to the king himself. So we are not the people we want to be. Probably everybody is in that boat. You know, you can be better at whatever the thing is. And also, this world isn't how we want it to be. Very few of us would say, oh, it's completely just and completely good. Let's move on. Perfection, check. And the only way this world can change, though, is if it is turned upside down, renewed, and made whole. And because we are a part of the world that we want to see made better, we ourselves have to be turned upside down, renewed, and made whole. Jesus is the king who brings his new kingdom. He's the one who turns this world upside down, renews it, and makes it whole. And he does the same to us. So that's why we bring our lives to this, and that's why we are reading this and going through this as a church body together. Now, Mike, two weeks ago, gave an overview of the Sermon on the Mount that we're calling the Jesus Manifesto. Um, he said it, that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is upside down. It's not what we would expect and contrary in many ways to the way the world functions as it is. But it's also inside out in that Jesus is most concerned first with our hearts and then the actions that kind of stem from that. 
how it might lead to actions. And this beginning kind of part of the Sermon on the Mount is called the Beatitudes. They're kind of eight larger general characteristics of, of what it looks like to live in Jesus' kingdom. And Mike uh, took the first four. The, so the first four are, the one is the poor in spirit. So someone who knows that before God they have nothing to offer. Not their gifts, not their money, not their talents. They have nothing to offer. And it's not that they're not talented. They might be, but they realize in God's sight they really have nothing to offer. So they cry out to God. Those who mourn means you, you don't excuse your own sin and you don't just, you aren't afraid merely of the punishment of someone finding out or something like that, but you actually mourn over it and it affects how you feel. The meek. So the poor in spirit and being mournful, it doesn't lead to pride. It leads to the exact opposite. It leads to meekness. It leads to gentleness. A complete lack of pride. Meekness, meekness ironically so, actually leads to truly strong people because those are people who aren't relying on their own strength. The truly meek. And then those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lives that are desperate to live a life with Jesus to the point of seeing it as a fundamental building block of living. You, if you don't eat and you don't drink, you die. And in that same kind of desperateness, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. A righteous life isn't an add-on to some kind of middle-class ideal. It actually strips us all of our selfishness and asks us to live in a different way, to follow Jesus. And so this week, those are, that was two weeks ago, this week we're going to hit the last four Beatitudes, verses 7 through 12 we're going to focus in on. And there's four specific ones. We have the merciful, that's an outward kind of characteristic, we show mercy to others. We have the pure in heart, which is more of an inward characteristic. We have the peacemakers, how we respond to others. And the persecuted, how we respond when others are against us. So merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, and persecuted. We will start first with the merciful. Again, it's an outward thing. And you know, mercy is not a word that we often use in our daily life. I don't think I ever would really use the word mercy if I'm just talking about random stuff. Um, so maybe it needs a little bit of a definition. Mercy first, it's an outward focus. We show mercy to others. It could be seen as compassion. Maybe that's a good start for us to kind of get our head around what mercy actually means. Another way is this. I remember when I was little, would wrestle with my, with my brothers or my friends or something, if, the, if you were pinned down and you couldn't get up and you're like in a bit of pain and you want it to stop, you'd have to yell out mercy. you just yell, mercy! And the person had, had to like let you get up and then you go back at it again. And hopefully you can make the other person say it. <laughs> it was a recognition of giving up. So showing mercy to those who recognize that they need it, that means there's a tenderness on both sides. Those who are involved in showing it and those who are involved in receiving it. Now let's contrast that with our current cultural climate. There's been an uptick in our justice meters here in the West, and I think that's good. If we hear of injustice, especially against, uh, say, against women, we are outraged and we are incensed, and I think that's a very good thing that our culture is a part of, because we ought to be. But even though mercy has kind of experienced an uptick, or sorry, justice has, has mercy really kind of experienced the same kind of uptick? I think what we've seen is the, uh, the sense of justice has grown, but mercy has kind of stayed the same. Justice without mercy means there's, there's no coming back. It leads to ruthlessness because the righteous don't recognize their need for mercy. I mean, for Kevin Spacey, is there any coming back? He, he's been like completely wiped of the internet vaults. Like you can't even stream a movie of his on Netflix or something. like. He's, he's gone. He doesn't exist anymore. 
Harvey Weinstein, same kind of thing, branded forever. Now, mercy is not looking away from wrongs or glossing over wrongs. Justice is important, but I wonder if our outrage, even just a little bit, if our outrage against the injustices of this world is really just our self-righteousness kind of looking outwards. Are we really that concerned about righteousness? Or do we want to feel righteous? Those are two very different things. Because when the tables are turned, and when we make the mistake, all of a sudden, that zeal for justice is not really as powerful as it was before. And we realize mercy, maybe that matters a little bit more. God values mercy. It's associated with his name. When, when God brought Moses up to the mountain to give Moses the Ten Commandments, God is introducing himself, saying, Hello, Moses, how are you? This is how he uh, describes himself. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And interestingly enough, those who show mercy get the gift of mercy. So if the gift of mercy isn't an incentive, you're not likely to show it. If you don't value mercy for yourself, you probably can't be expected to really show it to others very well. And there is a cost to mercy. Being merciful to others costs us our self-righteousness. You can't truly be merciful and self-righteous, not in the way that Jesus is talking about here. So that's mercy. How about the pure in heart? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God in verse 8. <clears throat> Purity is something that we see in like a water advert or like when talking about soap or something like that. Everything is like monochromatic, white or clear or clean or something like that. I mean, being pure, maybe it, um, in the church world, it reminds you of the Puritans. Um, and a puritanical view of life is one that, on the default, is kind of removed from life. I mean, the Puritans were great, and they gave us really great books, but being fun wasn't one of their hallmarks that have kind of continued on. And though I have noticed, though, a certain level of a kind of purity or cleanliness obsession over the past kind of five, ten years or so, um, I think really through food choices and what we eat, I mean, we even call like clean eating, like clean eating is a thing. And being healthy is good, and Lord knows I could stand to eat more cleanly, like more often. But why has it become such a cultural obsession? Like, the, we're not talking about the diet. Like, why has that mattered so much more in our culture over the past five or ten years to be seen as like a clean eater or someone who eats purely? I mean, th flicking through my Facebook feed, so many people are into it, and they want others to know that they're really into it. I think it's really easy for us to see how it's good to be pure in how we eat. I, mean, I think that's a good thing. And it's also very easy to have control over that. But it's not as easy to be pure in other areas. I mean, let's take a second and discuss what that means. Purity means clean, yes, but it also means single-minded, purely devoted. And the heart, if you're pure in heart, the heart is the symbol for a person, the symbol of the personality. So clean and devoted from our inward being. That's not a very easy way to live. That means more than our diets, more than what we could possibly even think of being able to share on something like Facebook. But better than getting likes, those who are clean and devoted get to see God, for they will see God. That's a pretty good benefit. How does one become spiritually clean and single-minded? Because, really, if we're honest, our hearts are kind of involved in all sorts of things. And that means we really end up worshiping all sorts of things. I mean, every day around 12 p.m., my stomach turns into a god. How can I possibly, outside of that, and that's just one small thing, how could I possibly be seen as pure in heart? 
I mean, think the kind of purity Jesus is talking about here, it, it also, it can be like a purging kind of purity, or like some kind of monkish existence, going to go in the desert by myself and not be tainted by this world or anything like that. If that was true, how would you be able to show mercy towards others? How would you be able to, later on, how would you be able to be peacemakers? It's a, there's a relational reality that Jesus is talking about here. So it must be more than just removing ourselves from the world. It's more than things that are maybe easy to control. It's more than just going on a spiritual version of a juice fast. It brings to mind uh, the psalm that Rich had us uh, read earlier in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust an idol or swear by a false god. So if you have clean hands and a pure heart, you don't trust in idols, you don't swear by false gods. And so there is a type of purging in our purity. Not the purging of the world or anything like that. It's the purging of other idols from our hearts. Single-minded devotion to God means we can't worship these things. But I don't worship idols, you say. The Bible says, you lie. You do. I'd like to know what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on, what you think about when you wake up first in the morning, what you daydream about, and what you think about when you, before you go to sleep. Two things, three things, four things. Any of those things coming to mind? Those are things that we all worship. And we haven't really spent any time thinking about it. That's frightening. Here's what idol worship can look like. Health, employment, love, leisure, money, stuff. It all promises a level of happiness. And we all are kind of awash in this. And there's a part of us that can't help but worship these things. And with your free time... If you're spending more of it in front of a screen than with people. It can be maybe always prioritizing your individual needs over others, whether in your life group or your family or your friends. It could be spending more time at work when you know you should go home, but work problems are much easier to solve than home problems, so you stay there. It can be always thinking of money, how to get it, how to spend it, what you're going to do with it, how you're going to move it around, how to plan for it. Or it can be always thinking of what people think of you, and that changes how you act and how you present yourself to the world. It means all of these things, and it's more, and we're all in the same boat with this. Graham Greene has a great line in one of his novels. He says, In our hearts is a ruthless dictator, ready to contemplate the misery of a thousand strangers if it will ensure the happiness of the few we love. Ruthless dictators. That's really, if we have, take a second in our hearts, we're probably, if we're honest, it's a little bit what we're like. We just don't have the power of ruthless dictators, thankfully. And so being pure in heart has a cost, just like the rest of these. It costs us our idols, the things we care about, but truly won't bring us happiness. So that's mercy. That's pure in heart. What about the peacemakers? The peacemakers is a, an active word, peacemakers. They're making something, making peace. Uh, and peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It's also the presence of a flourishing. It's bringing, uh, bringing life into an area that there wasn't life before. Often when we encounter a conflict, um, we don't really want to engage it or we find ways around it, and we call that being nice. Peacemaking isn't synonymous with nice. Notice that's not one of these beatitudes. Jesus doesn't say, blessed be the nice, for they will get, or, you know, whatever the thing might be. Jesus doesn't, in fact, I don't think Jesus likes people who are generally nice in that way at all. He talks a lot about that in the Bible. Often we cannot be loving towards each other in the name of being nice. And so... There are two other ways to go about conflict other than peacemaking, and we'll just talk about those for a second. We have peace breaking and peace faking. 
Peacebreaking is an obvious one. It's when you find yourself in a conflict and one person goes on the attack at the other. Uh, you feel you've been wronged and you want that other person to feel how wrong you feel and so you try and, and get them. And oftentimes you step it up a little bit. And this will escalate conflict and doesn't do much to bring peace, ever. That never works, by the way. I've tried it many times. It doesn't work. You probably have too. So that's peace breaking. That's an, that's an easy one. We know, oh, that's, that's not a good thing. One that's uh, probably more common and less obvious is peace faking. It's not an attack mode. It's an escape mode. It's pretending everything's fine when it's not. Even being the nice Christian and quoting the Bible to yourself, even maybe self-righteously under your breath, as if you're able to overlook the wrong, but you really aren't overlooking it. It's being in conflict and not dealing with it. It's being satisfied with a superficial level of peace, which really isn't peace at all. Now, conflict in itself doesn't have to be a bad thing. In fact, if we are living lives that are close to each other, we are going to have conflict. It's going to happen. It might be awkward. It might even be costly to your plans or to your ego, but it doesn't have to be a bad thing. Avoiding conflict by either attacking or escaping, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. And that creates what I like to call the kind of relational dead spots. Like, oh, we can't go there anymore. And then, oh, just realized, oh, we can't go there anymore. You're kind of, now you have to navigate this relationship in a very kind of awkward way. But those who make peace turn those potential relational dead spots into places of healing, to places of growth. And that's where relationships deepen and grow in warmth. I wonder, in your relationships, in your marriage, are you quick to apologize? Are apologies and saying sorry something that happens commonly in your house? Maybe you're not married and you have a lot of friendships with people and other relationships. And sometimes those relationships can kind of get tangled up a bit. Are you actively seeking the peace of that community? Or are you happy to just kind of let things be as they are? You know what doesn't need defending in a conflict? Often the first thing we defend is our ego, our self-righteousness. We think that needs massive amount of defense, but you know what? I promise you it doesn't. It will always be there. There is plenty of your ego to go around. And what about this idea, defending someone else's sense of righteousness at your own expense? Doesn't that sound crazy, especially if you're in a conflict with somebody? That's, it is crazy, but isn't that the kind of friend that we want? Someone who will look out for us even at their own expense? Even when they don't think that they're wrong? As much as it depends on us, we as a people are called to make peace with others. I mean, forgiveness, there is a cost to carry because it means not making that person feel the way that you felt. It means traveling in a world we all avoid, the awkward we will avoid the awkward at all costs. But we don't realize that there is actually a massive cost to that. It means not growing. It means being okay with these relational dead spots. And really, that doesn't keep us at a, at a, a steady state. We regress as people in community, if that's true. But then look what's in store for, for the people who are making peace actively. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. I think the reason why Jesus uses uh, this blessing here, for they be called children of God, is because children look like they, their parents. Children emulate what goes on in their house. God, through great cost to himself, makes peace not with people who kind of liked him or, or even said that they were sorry, but people who were sworn enemies of him. And he relentlessly pursues these enemies out of his love for them. This is what God's family looks like. And in God's family, we're peacemakers. That's who we are. 
But being a peacemaker costs us something as well as the rest of these things do. It costs us our ego. So that's merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers. And the last one we have uh, are the persecuted. Now, what about those who aren't peacemakers towards us, um, and, but even go a step further and, and are set against us? What do we do with that? This is verses 10 through 12. Blessed are the persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says in verse 10, persecuted because of righteousness. And he says in verse 11, persecuted because of me. So we can be persecuted for all sorts of things, but the specific thing that Jesus is talking about is those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for Jesus' sake, not persecuted for things that maybe you did wrong and kind of deserve like the punishment of or something like that. And he's, he's speaking specifically about words here, which I find encouraging because I think when I think of persecution first, I think of people who are um, possibly going to suffer harm or be put to death, and that's a reality in the world in, in many places, but not really my reality. But what Jesus is talking about is words. People who insult you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you. That is a little closer to home. That feels a lot more real to me. And this is not a persecution because of a overzealous fanaticism. Um, maybe some of us are like that, but I'm willing to bet that most of us, or maybe you're a bit like me, that we, growing up in Western culture, that Christendom has lulled us into a sense of false security. We aren't used to being persecuted, so it's not a muscle that we've really been worked, and so we avoid even the thought of it at all costs. I'm not saying that we should search for persecution. What I am saying is if we live a godly life, it will find us. How the Bible teaches us to live, especially how we view identity, how we view um, those other idols that we just briefly brought about, how we, um, with respect to that, what the Bible says about sexuality, all these things, they stop us from talking about the gospel. And it's not because we're persecuted often, though that is true. It's because we're afraid of it. So we've even stepped a one level away from what Jesus is talking about. And we don't get to this point because we're afraid of the persecution thing, so we don't go down that road. I mean, those who falsely say all kinds of evil. That would be like someone who says that um, all Christians hate gay people, which is a lie and the opposite because Jesus loves gay people and so should Christians. But oftentimes, being a Christian, having that term attached to you, people will think that automatically and might say all kinds of things about you. I don't know if you've experienced this, especially at work colleagues and things like that. It happens all the time. But if this has happened to you, Jesus says, you are blessed for yours is the kingdom of heaven. For some, there is seriously more of an immediate threat from, uh, if you're Chinese or from Asian cultures or from Muslim backgrounds, it's common to lose family and normal to be disowned, to be shamed, to be put outside of the community that you felt was stable in your life. And now all of a sudden, all that is up in the air. You know, it doesn't feel very stable. You know, for those who've experienced persecution of any kinds like this, Jesus says, yours is the kingdom of heaven. He wants to comfort the afflicted. Have you lost friends or family? Have people said all, falsely all kinds of evil against you? Have you been shamed for following Jesus? He's there and he says the kingdom is yours. But then Jesus takes it further 
And he says in verse 12, to rejoice. Why rejoice? Well, he says, because great is your reward in heaven. This is the climax of the Beatitudes. And, and, and very, it's a kind of a, an intro even to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Because verse 10, it says, blessed um, is, are these people, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it kind of like encapsulates this Beatitudes in an intro block. The biggest kind of general statement of Jesus' manifesto is coming. And this is the climax of it all. And it kind of feels like an anticlimax. We're talking about being persecuted. This isn't like feeling very victorious. The highest point in the Beatitudes is about us being persecuted, and we should rejoice? Does that just make religion kind of the opiate of the masses? I think what we see is a new perspective on life. Because we see life the way Jesus is talking about it here. Not from our horizontal day-to-day perspective, but from a larger, zoomed-out, 10,000-foot kind of eternal perspective. And this is important. And I think, I know I do, because we don't think about it very often, how the eternal perspective matters for our lives now. Because it does. And this is what Jesus is talking about. This is why it matters for us now. The perspective of eternity brings the possibility of rejoicing, even while being persecuted. That eternal perspective means we can live differently in our lives now, even while being with people set against us. And this isn't something new, Jesus says. The prophets happen to them. The one that we follow, Jesus himself, ultimately happens to him. And maybe when you go through this, you think life isn't fair. And you're right. Welcome to the world as it, not, as it should not be. We follow a God who is persecuted, who is put to death. We shouldn't expect more in our lives. And so when this does come up in our lives, we shouldn't get all bent out of shape as if it catches us by surprise. It has been promised to us. But one day, one day things will be set right. One day the entire world will be made right and will reflect the way Jesus is talking about. And that's the hope that we look forward to. But for now, the cost to living in this way, the cost of being persecuted, cost us our reputation. So in verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are those who persecute you because of me. In verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who persecute you because of righteousness. He's equating the two in the two verses. He's saying righteousness is me. That's bold, the boldness of Jesus to say something like that. Who talks like this? Either a crazy person or the person who he says he is, the king, the righteous king. Jesus is saying righteousness isn't some kind of abstract thing out there that you need to find. Jesus says, it's me. And Jesus isn't just teaching about the kingdom of God, although he is. Jesus is the king. It's his kingdom, and he's the one who is bringing his kingdom Again, Psalm 24 says, Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. We hear these teachings from Jesus and we think, Who can live up to this? (laughs) This is inspiring and great, but I am depressed. If this is Jesus' kingdom, that means basically you have to be perfect. You have to be humble. You have to care so much for others at so much great cost to yourself. You have to be willing for yourself to be persecuted, possibly even put to death. Only one person has ever really done this. The king who leads his kingdom doesn't do it from afar. 
he always goes first. He went before us, he went first. He was poor in spirit. He was mournful on our behalf, mournful to the point of death. He was meek. He had a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. He was merciful to us. He was pure in heart. He was the peacemaker. He was persecuted. The kingdom is his. It's his kingdom. He lived out his manifesto perfectly and dying our death that we should have died, we get to live his new life. If we are in his family, we are in his kingdom. This is what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And through him, we get these blessings. These aren't just held out for us. We get these blessings. And the more we are shaped like our leader, the more we can actually reflect his blessing. Ours is a kingdom of heaven. We will experience comfort. We will inherit the earth. We will be shown mercy. We will see God. We will be called children of God. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. So don't emulate smart people. Don't emulate pastors or authors or bloggers or celebrities or all the other people who want desperately to lead us. Because looking horizontally, what do we see? Maybe well-meaning people, maybe, but ultimately broken. And maybe we don't look out there. Maybe we look, we look inside of us. I mean, what do we see inside of us? Well-meaning? Maybe? Definitely broken. Neither the horizontal or the inward really get us anywhere. Look to the one who ascended the hill. Moses in the Old Testament went up to the mountain, and God gave him the law, and he came down. Jesus himself goes up to the mountainside and tells us what it is. More than that, he brings it all to fruition. Look to the one who ascended the hill. Let's lift our gaze away from others, from ourselves, just for a second. Can we look away from others and ourselves for a moment and look to Jesus? Living in a world like this, isn't this what we want? Who doesn't want to live like this? Who doesn't want to be like this? Who doesn't want to have friends like this? But there's a cost, and that's really where the rub comes in. Being merciful to others costs us our self-righteousness. Being pure in heart costs us our idols. Being peacemakers costs us our ego. And being persecuted costs us our reputation. But what we get, what we get is mercy. We get mercy. We get to see God himself. We get to be his children in his family. We get the kingdom. But how do we do this? How does this work? And this is why it's so important for us to see Jesus more than a mere teacher. Because he's the king. The king has an open invitation to his kingdom. The king controls who comes in and who leaves. It will cost you all you have, but you get so much more in the end. Because later on in Matthew, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. The king allows the entrance, and he also empowers us to be able to live in his kingdom. He's able to do this because later on in his life, he will ascend a very different kind of hill. There, that hill, he will be lifted up, not as a savior, but as a criminal. Not lauded for his righteousness, but persecuted specifically for it. Put to death. And in that death, he takes on our self-righteousness. He takes on our idols, our ego, our poor reputations. And he gives us a new life. A new one that allows us to truly be merciful, pure, peacemaking. People who are able to rejoice when persecuted. And more than that we get a king who leads us and empowers us to be able to continue to live that life.
day after day. So as you're sitting there, maybe you've thought of some costs as we've kind of brought up probably many. What could you give up to gain it all? Maybe you've never made that decision ever. This is a time now for you to decide to give up that stranglehold on your broken life and get so much more. You get a new life. You get a new family. You get a new kingdom. Jesus is saying right here, you get all of these things. But maybe Jesus has already granted you access to this kingdom and you're living in it now. And if so, when we realize we don't measure up, we do the same thing. We go back to the king, the one who died, that we might live this new life in this kingdom. And so more than mere inspiration, Jesus' new life allows us to actually live this out. He gives us these blessings and allows us to live it out. And more than just being depressed, we're mournful where we don't match up, and rightfully so, but we can bring ourselves to the king, and he always accepts us. So better than inspiration or depression, we get transformation. This is the king we get to follow. Let's pray to him. Lord, as we take another look um, into what living in your family is like, living, into your, living in your kingdom. We are amazed, um, and we're brought back. We're cut down. We realize we maybe aren't as good as we thought we were. But Lord, the, the blessings that you give us are so much more. So we pray just 1% more today, and even the day after that, will we be able to reflect more of your kingdom, not because we're better at it or because we're good, but because you, through your spirit, are empowering us now to live it. So Lord, we give up what we have in our hands, and we ask for you to fill us. That's all we can ask. We can only cry out, because we want to live in your kingdom, this kind of life you've described for us. We pray in your name. Amen.